Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com My guest today is none other than Jeremy Black, who has written over 140 books, I believe. Is that correct, sir? It is indeed, yes. That's quite impressive. And uh, on, on the subject of military warfare and military history, and uh, that's what we're going to discuss today. And I want to ask, how did you get into studying military warfare and military history? Um. I was hired in 1980 at the University of Durham in Britain to be the early modern Europeanist. And I was given the responsibility of teaching uh, European history from um, 1560 to 1730. And one of the topics I handled was the so-called military revolution of the early modern period. And I was very dissatisfied with that theory and I decided I would write a book criticising the theory. And in a way, uh, that launched me into a whole series of publications and topics that interested me. How do you go on about studying military warfare? Is it just what? Do you study several nations' warfare? Is it just one to stay to one nation, empire? Well, there's no one way to do it. Um, and I have done a whole different approach. I suppose it's really the level of military history you want to study. There's the tactical level, as it were, um, clashes between troops. There's the operational level, campaigns. There's the strategic level, wars as a whole. And then there are questions about other types of warfare, other forms of warfare, or other organisations of warfare, or war and society, war and culture, and so on. So there's no one approach to military history. And I've tried to handle as many as possible. Um, And I think the range is what makes my work interesting. I want, this is a question that I come up with quite frequently with just, just military history. And we had both about the British Empire last a few episodes ago. And we had about uh, the Roman army a few months ago. And this, I want to ask you as well, do you have to question the sources when you read into them with the fear of bias in when you read the sources? Well, There is no one form of military history, there is no one type, and there is no one set of sources, and obviously the nature of sources would vary. I'm not a historian of the uh, ancient world, but the sources available if you were studying uh, a conflict um, in, shall we say, um, uh, early Assyria are different to the sources available. Uh, Were you studying, let us say, uh, the Iran-Iraq War of 1980 to 1988? 
Um, so I don't think there's any uniform nature of sources. All historians need to be sceptical and questioning of the interpretations that are often advanced. Um, there is frequently a glibness in analysis, which is troubling. But equally, um, if you just present a subject without theory, you end up with a often disappointing series of um, just accounts of clashes, which don't enable you to draw any general uh, overarching interpretation. So what I've tried to do is look for overarching interpretations while at the same time being sceptical of the very process of drawing them. And that's how I think, in my view, one ought to do the subject, but others would have differing interpretations. Um, I don't know if this is a relevant question and I apologize if it's not, but one thing, when there's one typical work and I'm sure we I feel like we kind of have to discuss this in this episode, The Art of War, and I tend to make an own episode about the book, but have you seen military tacticians throughout history when you read read about military history using the art of war as an, because it's quite influential in the history of, even today, it's still relevant. Do you, have you seen military tacticians and generals use the art of war as an as a tactical use, to put it that way? Well, I mean, for most cultures, we don't know how they conceptualized warfare because for most cultures, we don't have any written sources. Um, and there is, even if you go to more recent history, let us say the history of the last 600 years, um, there is a problem that our account is are inevitably... Um, overly directed towards particular societies so that we tend to know more than about France than say Madagascar or we know more about China than New Guinea so I would be very loath to say that there is some kind of aggregate global score um, what I tried to do in this book that I've just brought out a short history of war which Yale University Press has published is to try and decenter the standard uh, narrative and the standard analysis, which is, on the whole, very Western-centric, with a powerful dollop sometimes of China as well. And, I mean, this builds on the book, which, again, Yale published in the mid-'90s, a book called War in the World, 1450 to 2000, but my new book is broader in scale and scope. And in each case, I've tried to argue that the standard interpretations of war are desperately limited, that the analytical methods are desperately limited because of the um, often very uh, parlous, small source base and also because of the habit of treating um, major societies, so-called, so defined, as the principal drivers of the analysis of war, um, and also because of often very crude uh, interpretive accounts, for example, interpretive accounts in terms of materialism, the notion that the state or society that has the most resources is going to win, 
um, which of course is simply not the case. Um, and um, I think that instead of that, if one has an understanding of the extent to which there are different cultures within which and from which war operates, that these different cultures may have very different notions of what you mean by suffering and loss, victory and defeat, and that a great mistake can be if you try and impose a set of values on a competing society which isn't going to fight as you wish them to fight. Now, whether you call that mistake the art of war or not is, is in my case, my view, of no particular interest because I actually am concerned not with um, the um, thought or speculation of, of thinkers about war, but actually... I'm concerned about practitioners, and most practitioners, of course, do not leave us voices and do not provide accounts of how they were conceiving of operations, because for most of history, we're dealing with societies where literacy or the habit of writing down at least theoretical reflections was very limited. So I'm not particularly interested in what I regard as an atypical and actively misleading set of sources. And I'm also rather critical of many of the historians who've sought to try and fit or shoehorn the world into some military uh, explanatory model based upon a civilizational approach. Now, whether that is... Um, you know, Michael Howard's approach to war or Geoffrey Parker's theory of an early modern military revolution, I find these unconvincing because they do not allow sufficiently for other cultures that took different trajectories and had different understandings and assessments. Um, and I think that pattern remains the same to this day and may well, in fact, become more pronounced rather than less pronounced. And talk, talk to me about your new recent book. What is, you mentioned talk a little bit, but elaborate a little bit about what your latest book is about and how the source well, is used. It's a short history of war in 40 short chapters, each of 2,000 words, which really does hone down what you want or can say. And it's an attempt to be global in its coverage, to include with due weight um, a whole range of societies, including in Oceania, Africa, um, and the various parts of Asia, as well as the more conventional geographical cast. And in order to do that, as I make clear, I leave out some of the uh, classic European conflicts or downplay them or don't mention some famous battles because I think that these are not necessarily of any particular consequence outside Europe as a whole and I don't think it is helpful uh, to write a history of war around a continent which up to 1500 um, had only a limited impact on the rest of the world. Obviously the situation changes after 1500. But even so, um, you can write a history of, shall we say, South Asia, 
or East Asia in the 16th or 17th centuries, uh, or of East Asia in the 18th century, in which uh, European societies are of rather modest significance or any significance. Um, and if you're looking even into, for example, India in the 18th century, the major um, invasion of India, for example, in the mid-18th century is not uh, the operations of the British in Bengal, however famous Robert Clive and the Battle of Plassey was, but actually the uh, um, Persians seizing Delhi and defeating the Mughals in 1739, or the Afghans doing the same um, in 1761. And I think that there is a lot of selectivity. You can see the same thing um, in, for example, some of the books of famous battles. Um, there's a particularly bad book by Richard Overy on this, in which he seems to imagine, well, he's clearly ignorant about most non-European history. Um, and I think that this then becomes, for a lot of historians, self-fulfilling. They only know a limited amount, and therefore they write their account of significance and build up their analytical framework around the little they know. And what I deliberately tried to do in this book and in the bigger Yale book, the earlier one, was to actually try and provide the information to enable people to have a better grasp of the global history of war. Now, you mentioned that European battle, said that European battles isn't really significant outside of Europe, but wouldn't you say that the siege of Vienna was rather significant with Solomon? Oh, I didn't say all European battles, but I mean, for example, one of the battles I said that was of limited significance, really, is the Battle of Sadowa, Koenigsgratz in 1866. Prussia beats Austria. Fine. But what is the significance of that? By 1945, Germany is in ruins. There are uh, Soviet troops in both Vienna and Berlin. What was actually the long term significance of Germany? Of, sorry, of Prussia, not Germany, of Prussia beating Austria in 1866. Mm -hmm. So I think one has to be very careful of assuming the standard narrative that is often presented and actually need to ask some questions about it. The, the battle you're citing, the second siege, or the second Ottoman siege, I should say, because there'd obviously been many non-Ottoman sieges of Vienna in 1683, is of consequence precisely because it is a siege which marks the apex of the Ottoman advance in Europe. Um, far less consequential, for example, was the French advance on Vienna in 1741, or even Napoleon's capture of the city in 1805, um, because Napoleon was as dust by 1815. Um, and, you know, one has to, again to avoid the sense that somebody like that, who went down to total failure in the Napoleonic Empire, went down to total failure, the actual significance of that needs to be put in question marks. And I would agree with you on that point. And as you can see as well with Napoleon, the Napoleonic Empire and the capture of Moscow was also a total failure. Yes, I think Napoleon, I've got a book coming out with Roman and Littlefield in the United States on um, the strategy of the French Revolution in Napoleonic Wars. And it seems to me that the two powers 
whose strategy we should focus on are the victors out of the Napoleonic Wars, which are Russia and Britain. Um, Russia, for example, um, you know, in 1815, on the third anniversary of Borodino, the, the, the Tsar of Russia, Alexander I, um, reviews the Russian army at what is now Disneyland, you know, to the east of Paris. Um, the, um, you know, the, there is a weight and significance of Russia also shown by the extent to which between 1790 and 1815, it had also defeated the Ottomans, um, the Swedes, and um, the, the Persians, the Iranians. Um, so uh, Russia is clearly a global uh, force of military significance, as is Britain. Britain not only uh, defeats French forces, but also between 1790 and um, 1815, um, expands and strengthens its position both in India and around the Indian Ocean and becomes even more clearly the leading naval power in the world. Now, it seems to me that these are of strategic significance far greater than the rapid overthrow of the French Empire. Now, I want to discuss the Battle of uh, Moscow a little bit. and um, I wanted to ask what went wrong for Napoleon in the Battle of Moscow. Well, it kind of, we all know the winter came and it's a big player in the, in this game for his failure, but it can't be, have been just a winter. It must have been a little bit more complicated, or is it? You're right. You're, you're talking about the 1812 campaign, the failure of that campaign. You're absolutely right. It was based on a seriously flawed military and political analysis. The seriously flawed analysis is that it would be possible to defeat Alexander and force him to the negotiating table. In other words, a given uh, output, defeat of Alexander, would lead to an outcome, Alexander surrendering. This was a totally flawed analysis. On top of that, Napoleon underrated the fighting calibre of the Russians, and that was stupid because... The French had already experienced that fighting calibre in the War of the um, Second Coalition and the War of the Third Coalition. And Napoleon himself had experienced it at Eilau and Friedland in 1807. So that was a double stupidity on his part. So Russian fighting uh, quality, right Russian resilience, a failure to appreciate that the, the Russians would uh, negotiate peace with the Turks, which they did in 1812, and thus enable them to concentrate against um, the, the French. That was significant. The serious logistical disaster of the French campaign, all of these were of great consequence, irrespective of the weather. And in many senses, the Germans were to replicate these faults in 1941. I want to talk about that a little bit as well, because what makes Russia such an uncomfortable nation? Is it the, with the weather, but it's also what Russia, 
Germany well, tried to. Can I just say? Can I just say? Russia isn't an unconquerable nation. I yeah. mean, I can think of uh, the Mongols did pretty well in the early mm. uh, early 13th century. The, didn't the Han Empire as well yes, Russia. And in fact, the Poles managed to you know keep a garrison in 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 Moscow during the Russian time of troubles. I think it's not so much, and and of course, although Russia, I mean, you know. Russia is defeatable, all right? It's defeatable. After all, it was defeated in the First World War. Mm. And if what you'd want to do is to move from being defeatable to getting somebody to accept your political verdict, that's a different question entirely. But Russia is certainly defeatable, as are other powers. I mean, there are clearly uh, issues posed by the ability of Russia's size to provide defensive depth by the um, habitual resilience of Russian forces. Those are clearly uh, significant, but there are other factors as well that are often pertinent, and one must be very cautious, uh, as, as also if one's talking about, say, Afghanistan, one must be very cautious of moving from one conflict to another. So, let me give you an example. Um, the fact that the British were unable to overcome the war of um, American independence from 1775 to 1783 did not mean that the North, the federal government, would be unable to overcome the war of Southern independence, otherwise known as the Civil War, between 1861 and 1865. You know, in other words, one has to always be very careful of reading from one example to another. Or I mentioned early, earlier the uh, troubled uh, notion of European military effectiveness in the early modern period, the argument that underplays the Parker thesis, which has been readily used by others of the military revolution. And we were discussing... Um, the defeat of the Ottomans in 1683. We could have also mentioned the defeat, the earlier defeat in 1529. But it is worth bearing in mind that other non-Western powers could achieve very significant success. I mean, the total destruction of the invading Portuguese army by the Moroccans in 1578, and there isn't another uh, land. Um, invasion of Morocco till 1844. I mean, that's a pretty sensational. Um, or, um, yes, um, Peter the Great captured Azov from the Ottomans, but he then gets, gets defeated and forced to surrender at the Pruth in 1711, um, and so on and so forth. Or, yes, um, uh, you could emphasise the fact that the Russians are able to advance across Siberia, where the principal ev- opponents are climate and scale, um, in the early 17th century. But it's worth bearing in mind that in the 1680s, they are beaten by the Chinese in the Amur Valley, and they do not can come to conquer that until 1858 to 1860. So one has to be very careful as to where you take your headlines from. Hmm. And this underlines the point I've been trying to make earlier, that a lot of the work on general military history is often of very poor quality um, and inadequate. And the trouble is that because 
the vast majority of historians are non-military historians. They don't want complexity. What they want is a simple account that helps to give them their answer. So they throw out some kind of cliche like war made the state and the state made war or a cliche. The very term a military revolution is a cliche. Uh, They throw these out as if they answer the problem. They've slotted war into their interpretive schema. But that, of course, is deeply flawed because military history, like any other form of history, is complex, capable of um, multiple interpretations, has issues, as we were discussing at the outset, with the nature of the sources and the reliability of the sources and what you can make of the sources. And all of those points mean we should be cautious. And Speaking of cautious, when what, what made? How do you know that this is a source that I can trust? That I think we can go with this source? Is there such a thing? Well, one's got to be careful. I mean, I wrote, for example, a a, a history of the Battle of Waterloo, and one of the things I used for that was the printed questionnaires that were sent. Um, to British officers who were veterans of that campaign um, by a man called Sibthorn, who was trying to produce an analysis of the battle, including a detailed plan of it, model of it. And he sent a series of uniform questions, this printed questionnaire, sort of, What time were you first under fire? What was the French unit opposite you? Mark on this map with the cross where your unit was, these sort of questions. And you will not be surprised to hear, and this was within living memory, obviously, that a lot of the answers from the same units were very varied. You will not be surprised to hear that there were bitter disputes, even in Wellington's lifetime disputes that led to printed controversy as to, for example, which British units were instrumental in the defeat of the final advance of the French Imperial Guard, what the British Light Cavalry had been doing in the latter stage of the battle, etc., etc. And that's a battle for which, which was on a very compact scale, for which, which went on many hours, for which the British army did not... Um, uh, on the whole, particularly if you're you're talking about the infantry, move its positions very greatly. And nevertheless, that was not easy. And then you get other accounts. There's a marvellous book on the Battle of Salamanca of 1812 by um, the Antipodean scholar Rory Muir. And Muir talked in that battle about the unreliability of a lot of the sources. Now, if you're you're looking at Salamanca, I've been on the battlefield there. It's more complicated, a much larger battlefield, different stages of the battle, units moving, etc., etc. So it's more complex, but nevertheless, the unreliability of the sources, not least their contradictory character, is something that emerges quite significantly. So you've got that dimension at the tactical level. In other words, what actually happened. Then you've got what interests me more. I mean, I've written tactical military history. I've written about a number of battles, Culloden also, for example. But I'm more interested in the strategic dimension. And in the strategic dimension, 
the sources are, as it were, adequate and inadequate. They're adequate because what they claim to be is an account of how you suppose your interests are going to be advanced by certain stages of planning, certain operational uh, plans, and how you think your opponents are doing. They're inadequate because we tend to underplay the subjective and in particular political nature of these things. I mean, you know, I mean, bear in mind an officer, a general is just a politician in uniform. I don't mean by that that they're any better or worse, but they have reasons for advancing particular strategies and for adopting particular points of view. And let me give you an instance. If you go to the National Archives at Kew, in Britain, you will find a series called um, uh, General Headquarters Papers, which relates to the correspondence in 1781 between uh, Cornwallis, the British Commander-in-Chief in the South, Southern States of the United States, and the overall British Commander-in-Chief in North America, General Sir Henry Clinton in New York. The two men, incidentally, hate each other. And Cornwallis is repeatedly saying, we cannot be expected to succeed unless we are sent much more help. Why is that? Because um, we are under enormous pressure. The locals are hostile. Um, the, uh, there are supply issues, etc., etc., etc. Um, and um, he emphasises all of that, and you could take that source and say, well, that basically proves British strategy in the Southern Campaign would not work. Um, or you could take the papers from precisely the same moment sent by Nathaniel Green, the American Commander-in-Chief in the South in 1781, back to George Washington, held in the Green Papers in the Library of Congress, and also, obviously, the other side of it in the Washington correspondence. And what do they say? The locals are all, help, are all hostile. We haven't got enough supplies. We're obviously bound to fail. Unless you can send help, what do you expect? So, in other words, what you've got there are two sets of accurate sources, if what you mean by accurate is them representing a point of view, but they only can be understood or should be understood in terms of their relationship with each other. Hmm. Um, I, I want to talk about military strategy in the early 1800s. And is this when we start to see trench warfare start happening in the early 1800s, the military strategy? Uh, no. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> Military strategy in the medieval times and late I mean, 1800s no, no, no. is not I my strong suit. No. Trench warfare, if you mean um, shorter trench systems, mm. are part of any uh, attempt to, um, not every, but any, uh, any attempt to take part in siege craft. And uh, you see them famously in the siege of Petersburg in the latest last stages of the American Civil War. Trench warfare, if you mean continuous front lines which are entrenched, are a characteristic or become a characteristic of World War One. As far as strategy is concerned, I mean, I've 
written a couple of books on strategy. And in the best, the bigger one is the Yale book called Military Strategy, A Global History, which I think, you know, your listeners might find interesting. And if you look at that book, what I argue is that although the formal language of strategy is essentially developed in the late 18th century, the practice of strategy prefigures the word. And that, that shouldn't surprise The same thing is true, for example, of geopolitics. Geopolitics as a term begins in the um, late um, uh, 1890s, but obviously geopolitics as a practice was prior to that. So that that a term and a practice are not coterminous. So what is the strategies we start seeing here? In, in general, period? like in European, uh, we can start with European and move on over later. But when? Which period? Um, let's say 1800s, to put it that final period. So by 1800s, you mean the period from 1800 to 1900? Yes. Or, yeah. Um, well, there's no one type of war. The strategy, for example, in a civil war like the three Carlist wars in Spain is very different from a strategy in a war of intervention, such as the Russian intervention in Hungary in the late 1840s. That in turn is very different from a state to state war fought for limited goals and without trying to, as it were, overthrow the other state completely, as in the Prussian approach to Austria in 1866. Uh, For the Prussians against France in 1870, however, because the uh, French um, would not uh, treat with them, would not surrender to them, they get drawn into a much more complex strategy of deep intervention. So there's no one strategy, no more than there's any one strategy today. There are a multiplicity of strategies at the present moment. I mean, if you were looking, for example, simply at the recent conflict in Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban, the Afghan government and the um, United States had different strategies. And those strategies in turn were a world away from that of, say, the People's Liberation Army in China um, or the current conflict between um, Ethiopia and the rebels or whatever term you wish to use for them, of Tigray province. So there are a host of strategies. And one of the great mistakes, it is a mistake which is particularly uh, present in those people who are neoplatonic in their thought patterns or essentialist or whatever term you wish to use. I've got some pretty tartar terms than those. Um, people who think that there is a root identity, a true nature of strategy or war or whatever you mean, and therefore that the job of the scholar is to present that. That's just rubbish. That is total rubbish. Human beings are complex. Human society is complex. It has developed and will continue to develop in very diverse fashions. And to therefore try and treat of it as if there is a uniform um, uh, pattern of behaviour which can be readily analysed is much too simplistic. Mm. And I, I apologise, I understand if you cannot answer this and I apologise in advance, but what, what do you think about the China's, you mentioned Chinese rebellion, what do you think of China's current naval and militaristic power? Do you think it's a threat right now? Well, I mean, it's clearly a significant 
challenge stroke threat to its immediate neighbors? Yes. And that is of consequence for the rest of the world because of the concentration of economic activity in that region and because that region sees the world's two leading powers with very divergent views. Um, if, for example, you mean, is it a threat to Peru or Paraguay? No, it's a question of whom you think it is a threat to. But yes, it is clearly a um, a matter that should trouble us, partly because it's entirely possible that conflict will begin without people thinking through adequately the possible or indeed likely responses of others. Well, I want to talk about some Asiatic powers because we talked a lot about Europe and I want to talk about the Japanese military during World War II, if you don't mind. No, Can, what how did they what what can you tell tell me about the Japanese military power and the strategy and general and how well, they if fought you want to look in... at the, if you want to look at the strategy of World War two again I have a book on that mm. called the strategy of World War two it's come out this summer and clearly it's you know we need to be bringing the podcast to to a close because I don't want to simply repeat or mm. summarize what yeah. I've laid out in books with the, often some complexity and some detail. But essentially with Japan, um, again, we have the problem that there is more than one decision-making body within Japan. Uh, if you want to simplify it, and this is a simplification, you can think of it in terms of the army and the navy. The army is divided essentially between those people who are most concerned about the Soviet Union, those most concerned about China. And the navy is understandably more apt to see an oceanic a uh, set of issues, problems and opportunities for, J- for Japan. Uh, conflict obviously begins in 1931 in the case of the Manchuria episode and then full-scale war in China in 1937. But that is a, for example, if you're looking at what the Navy is doing in 37, 38, 39, that's essentially a matter of supporting the army in its operations Uh, amphibious operations, for example, the capture of Canton or Quanzhou, however you want to call it, um, in uh, 1938, uh, operations against um, uh, Shanghai earlier. Um, these are um, more, these are very different from the kind of carrier uh, conflict Um, which the Japanese become involved in in 1941. But again, one of our great problems tends to be the uh, frame of reference uh, we adopt. Um, that the um, If we're adopting a frame of reference in terms of the War of the Pacific and conflict between America and uh, J- Japan, then China can be reduced to a lesser factor. But you could turn that on its head and say, um, this is a flawed account of Japan's situation and Japan's strategic um, circumstances. I want to ask you about this, because do you think that we can draw similarities to China's naval power and power, militaristic power now to what Japan... Of course, it's a different time period and Web military technology has advanced in this significantly since the World War II. But do you think it's kind of a similar situation that we, a kind, 
that's in Japan and China right now from World that's War II. Very interesting. That's very interesting. I mean, I think what I would say about that is although the modern uh, People's Republic has landward um, challenges, not least uh, border differences, which can be violent with India in the Himalayas, most of China's landward frontiers are currently um, stable. And there is an alliance with Russia, which has the longest of the landward frontiers, whilst Burma, for example, is in effect a Chinese client state. Um, that is very different to the situation the Japanese were in uh, on the continental landmass of a East Asia in the 1930s, because not only were they operating against um, China, but they also had, as you will know, clashes with the Soviets, significant clashes in both 1938 and 1939. Um, so I would say Japan's strategic position was in a very different strategic position um, then to that of China today. But I think it's an interesting comparison that you draw. And the reason that comparisons are always interesting is because the contrasts can make them more instructive. And as we know, Pearl Harbor was a game changer for the Japanese. But do you think we will see something like Pearl Harbor now? And we seeing that America may have lost its taste for war with the defeat in Taliban. Do you think that America, if China were to join conflict, would come to rescue for Taiwan if they were to invade Taiwan? And do you think there will be something similar to Pearl Harbor this time again, that history will repeat itself? Well, <laughs> that's very interesting. Um, several things to say. I mean, Pearl Harbor was a direct assault, as indeed were, say, the assaults on Wake and Guam and, um, and the American forces in the Philippines, were direct assaults on the United States, a direct assault of that scale at the present moment, I do not believe is being envisaged, envisaged by China because it would lead to a thermonuclear response. You know, that would be a world war of direct attack on American sovereign territory of that scale. That's different um, to the Chinese invading Taiwan. I mean, I certainly hope that they don't do so, um, but that is not of the same level of scale of likely response. I cannot see the United States putting going nuclear in response to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. I may be wrong, but I just simply can't see that. So I think that there are a diff uh, there is a difference depending upon what actions are taken. Do you think, like I said, that they've lost the taste after the defeat in Afghanistan, that they will come to aid, and that there will be a global war, but that, or do you think that they will stay back and become an isolated country again? Um, in the case of the United States, the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan was part of the pivot towards um, Asia, that had, by which they meant East Asia, that had long been envisaged. It had been envisaged by President Obama. It had been envisaged by President Trump. 
President Biden brought it to fruition. Um, clearly, the implementation of it did not work out as had been envisaged. And on the basis of that, there has lot, been a lot of criticism. But to be blunt, if you are a United States policymaker and you are challenged by a North Korea that is weaponizing um, its um, submarines, that is developing nuclear missiles of long, sorry, nu- missiles capable of nuclear warheads at steadily longer range. And on top of that, obviously, you have, or separate to it, the much greater challenge of China. You would be foolish in the extreme to put Afghanistan as your leading military commitment. So I think the Americans made the right choice to pull out. I think it was a choice that had long been announced. Um, I think what happened was, um, uh, shall we say, unfortunate but unsurprising. Now, let uh, us draw to a close now, because... Yeah, I, I, have, have, one, I have one more question to ask you, one actually. More so, if, and it's, it's just what we've been discussing recently, so... Um, what do you think will happen in North Korea if a global war would be escalated? Because as we know, North Korea is allied with China. And what do you think will happen with that? I do not think that the United States, as presently the geopolitics of that area is, would envisage a unilateral strike against North Korea unless the Chinese had accepted it, and I cannot see the Chinese accepting it. Mm. Um, So I think at the present moment, the United States will wait until such time as the North Koreans are either collapse, which is probably what would be most hoped for, or take a step which is so dangerous that there needs to be action that is unilateral. Thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Pleasure. Pleasure. Um, Will you be able to send me a link to it? So absolutely. I, so I can, and would I be able to to resend that link to other people? You should be. You should be. And uh, I want to. Do you have anything you wish to promote? Anything you want, want me to put in the description below and the links? Well, I mean, if you would like to mention my new short history of war and my World War Two in a hundred maps. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming. My name is Adam. This has been Well That Aged Well. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, wherever you can find podcasts, and on Instagram under Well That Aged Well. And this has been My name is Adam. I'll see you. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you very much, and good evening. And to you, to you, sir.